1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Educationalists sometimes argue that if there's a single magic ingredient to improving a poor-performing school, it's to appoint one of those heads who somehow can turn it round. And there do seem to be cases where that happens. Although, as we'll hear, not everyone agrees with this idea of so-called super-heads. And if it is as simple as that, how come it's so hard to replicate what these talented heads do. And anyway, what do they do in the first place? We can find out with Alison Colwell, author of No Excuses, turning round one of Britain's toughest schools. So welcome to you. Thank you. It's nice to be here. And now then, you don't think of yourself as a superhead, or you don't like the term. Tell us a bit about why not, because I think a lot of people would think you are. That's exactly what you are. Well, I don't
2: like the term because I think it it looks and points that the, 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 the reason a school has turned around is, is kind of down to one person, and it never is. I like the phrase, which is in my own original one, of conductor of the orchestra. Uh, and I, I like the phrase because... I think uh, unless you're very musically knowledgeable about music, you can all the, the, the you know you don't really know what the conductor's doing. And I, I like that because a, a good head, a good school leader, there is so much that goes on behind the scenes, uh, underneath the surface that people don't know. But it is really critical that they are doing a good job. But it is dependent on that orchestra. And what I have been very fortunate in being able to do is to recruit of a, a highly skilled orchestra.
1: Yeah, I, I, I see the point. But I guess if you were the Minister of Education and you had a really hard school in whatever country it was, uh, from their point of view, they might think, uh, who's the best person to turn around a school, a headmaster or headmistress who, who could you know, put that orchestra together and, and get it all in place and get it done?
2: Oh, I'm not negating or diminishing the importance of the school leader, of the head. I just don't like the phrase superhead uh, absolutely and and to be that conductor of the orchestra i'm not sort of saying that to diminish its importance to diminish what's needed and the the skills i would say and the resilience and the steel and the determination and the moral purpose and all those other things that make a great school leader i'm just saying i don't like the term superhead because it does sort of focus the whole light on that one role the book um it's Ebsfleet Academy. I mean, originally the school had to be anonymous and then and then I was exposed. So everybody knows it's about Ebsfleet Academy. And I was there uh, as the principal for seven years. And the book has uh, condensed those seven years into a five year story uh, of, of what we did when from taking the school to a school that was a failing school into a school that was was a good school, it was judged a good school by Ofsted, but um, was also a good school by the other the many other
1: measures of a good school. Tell us what it was like when you got there.
2: So when I went into the predecessor school, it was it had all of the trademarks of a failing school. So there was poor behaviour, of course. I mean, appalling behaviour. Low standards, low expectations, uh, obviously low exam results and, and poor teaching and, and learning. Uh, difficulties in recruiting staff, a high turnover of staff, a poor reputation, uh, all, all all of those hallmarks, as I say, of a failing school, which isn't to say, and this is an important thing, I think, to say that in failing schools, there aren't great teachers, because there are. I've worked in a lot of tough failing schools in my career, and there's always great teachers in those schools. But the point is, a school, you know, they, they, they're in their classrooms, they shut their doors, they, they literally uh, are in a sort of oasis beyond the sort of chaos and, and difficulties that's going on throughout the school. So it's not the case that, you know, there's great teachers in failing schools, that, but it's about the culture and building the culture and making sure the school is,
1: is great throughout the school. Tell us about a couple of those things you mentioned on your list of failings. Uh, low expectations. We'll start with that. What, what does that look like? Well,
2: I think... I think low expectations are at the heart of both school failure and school success. And they, it's about everything. It's about the expectations you have of the students, what they can achieve, what they can look like, how they can behave, what their homework returns can be like, what their attendance at school can be like, what their punctuality is. And it's about, that's why my book is called no excuses, because I have chosen to work in areas of of deprivation of so-called challenging schools and challenging areas. And it's very easy for some people with good intention i'm sure to sort of make excuses and to say oh but oh but look at their home look at this look at that they haven't got the advantage and i think that is doing is an absolute that is doing them a disservice and i uh, i learned from a very wise head that i worked for many many years ago who used to say to the children uh, you know we've all got difficult lives you've got a difficult life i've got a difficult life we leave that behind us and it's quite a simple message but it really stayed with me and the whole no excuses thing. So not to have any low expectations, to have absolutely the sky hair expectations that, and we had many bright youngsters in, 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 the, in the tough schools I've taught in. Of course you do, you know, <laughs> just because poverty and deprivation doesn't mean that the children aren't bright and able, but they haven't got the same material advantage. But as some Mike Wilshaw said, you know, poverty of expectation can can have a heavier weight than than, than, than material poverty. And I really believe that.
1: And and another phrase you use, poor behaviour. How bad? How poor? Well, when I
2: first was in the school, the predecessor school, because then we we became an academy in a in a small multi academy trust, appalling. I mean, you know, your your whole worst uh, nightmare of 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 poor behaviour, well, what what that would conjure up in anybody's mind with. Uh, You know, I have seen, you know, chairs being thrown, teachers being sworn at, F and blind and phones out and just general chaos.
1: Yeah. Now, then you keep uh, mentioning the academy uh, aspect of this. I think for people not in the UK who are listening, can you just talk us through what, you know, why academies happened, what they are, what the idea was, what's the whole story of academies?
2: Well, I don't keep mentioning it because I think it's a bit of a smokescreen. I mean, the academy movement was, uh, you know, a lot of schools are now part of bigger trusts, bigger families of schools. and, And there's many pretty obvious benefits to schools working as part of that family where you can share resources, share expertise, share personnel, have centrally shared services. So there's a real sort of um, you know, I think there's a general understanding that there is some real benefits from that. But when I was first at the school and and, and I used to have family, I used to have parents say to me, "Oh, this school is strict now because it's an academy." And I said, "No, no, no. This we have high standards and we enforce our rules because that's what a good school does. It's nothing to do with being an academy. Yeah? Being an academy is is kind of an organizational structural thing that schools uh, are now part of, but." The culture and the standards and the the, the, the tone and the ethos and the, the the mission and the aspiration of the school comes from the leadership of that school.
1: I, I got a feeling I may have misunderstood this, but tell me if I have. I thought academies part of the change was that uh, schools in the UK have traditionally been under well, many of them under the control local authority, of local, yeah. L- yeah, local yeah, yeah, local authority sort of, and this is like, uh, sort of, you know town level or that that sort of authority or even county level authority and and the academy idea was to get them away from that and into uh, you know more independent probably forms of management is that have i got that right
2: well i suppose more about more independent forms of accountability and there's a sort of financial issues there to do with as you say breaking away from sort of one local authority uh, having a, I know 100 schools um mm. and then then being in smaller as i say i prefer the word families of schools but my point is that being an academy there's, there's also there's also failing academies you know being an academy is not a sort of magic pill
1: That's a good point. And and there are successful council-run schools. 100%. 100%.
2: 100%, Yeah.
1: So so it's not really about that management. It's more about what happens inside the school. Now, then, one of the things you did very early on was make this no excuses culture quite sort of clear. And can you just talk us through the uniform issue because you know many people would think today in this day and age uniforms aren't really that important and we've all moved on and so on uh, and, and, you, and you don't so can you tell us what your views are and what you did
2: well I <laughs> I think uniform I mean, I do think uniform is important. I mean, I'm working in Spain now and and obviously there's, I think, I don't know if the UK is the only country and and international schools around the world that, you know, like British international schools that have uniform. I know it's a, it's a sort of quintessentially British thing. And I know there's plenty of people who do, as you've said, think uniform, Ah." but when you're in a culture, a society, a country, like in the UK and you do have uniform, then I think it's really important. And that's what I used to say. I mean, it makes me laugh that sometimes um, people say to me, oh, you're so strict and you're so this and you're so... And I said, you know what? I'm really not. I'm just like, if you've got a rule, let's enforce it. If you you either have a rule and enforce it or change the rule. What I can't bear is schools who say they've got a rule, whether it's uniform or detentions or homework, and then don't enforce it because that to me is silly. So, you know, let's have no uniform, fine, or let's have uniform and enforce it. But what I don't want is to say we've got uniform, and then the kids to not adhere to it and to come in with jewellery and, and uh, the skirts that are too short, or the school, the shoes that aren't right, or the haircuts, and, and we get away with it, because that's just sort of in, that's just not clear, is it? So we, one of the, um, and again, it's not just, you know, the school, I was lucky enough to be the, um, the principal, of. This is such a common theme amongst Schools in challenging areas, failing schools, turnaround schools. As you said, that one of the first things is the uniform and the standards and the expectations, and sending the kids home if the uniform isn't good enough. Because it's not about the 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 laces, is it? It's not about the length of hair. It's about the authority of the school. And this is the point I kind of keep making in the book, and that I've made it feels forever since I've been a school leader. That it's not about those my new shy and the parents that said. The colour of their hair doesn't affect their learning. And I'm like, correct. But if you want to go and work for EasyJet, there will be a rule book and an expectation of what you can and can't wear and what you can and can't look like. And this is about rules and authority and and standards. Um, And that's, you know, to me, it's really quite simple.
1: That's that's so interesting. I mean, so basically, well, let's just, uh, first of all, I mean, it was quite amusing reading your book because you just had to get into such detail about what the uniform should be, you know, down to the height of a heel or, you know, really prescriptive uh, and also providing funds for people who can't afford it, right? I mean, that's a, that's a big issue with uniform. It's, it's expensive. And,
2: and It is. But when we opened as a new academy, every single member of the school got a new got a new uniform uh, supplied to them. And I think you need to be precise because otherwise you get grey, don't you? So, and I think, and the irony of all of this, Owen, the irony is that I'd actually didn't really want to talk about uniform and about the color of laces and about height of heels, I wanted to talk about teaching and learning and aspiration and curriculum and university and and futures and so you say let 's be really, really prescriptive and really clear, so someone can 't say, Oh, but does this mean that or does it so be really clear and if you 're going to have a uniform code, be really, really clear about it so that you don 't get into these uh, <laughs> these arguments about it but you know as as I said, and as you know, and you 'll have seen there 's these sort of headlines that they're they're, they're frequent aren't they schools enforcing the rules the parents moaning the parents not some parents it's not you know they're always the minority they're always the minority there was a school down in Kent that I was hearing about a few months ago that the um that that the head had done a similar sort of thing and and about detentions I think it was about detentions and uh, Saturday detentions or some nonsense you know that the school is actually trying to have high standards raise expectations raise these children's life chances And, uh, you know, they always get that backlash.
1: Yeah, but what you're saying is it's all about respecting authority, right? I mean, basically, all these issues that you ran into, and there were lots of them where you were sort of saying, no, I'm insisting, we've got a clear rule, it's going to be enforced. The the, the, the bigger point is getting the pupils and the parents to respect your authority as a head, right?
2: It's uh, it's absolutely about... Respecting the authority, Owen. Unless mine is the head, the school—it's respecting the authority of the school. So I'm there as the figurehead, uh, and I'm there sort of to take all this, and that's fine. I'm, you know, to take all this, take the insults, <laughs> take the swearing, take all this, um, because it's about the authority of the school. Whether it's uniform, whether it's turning up on time, whether it's turning up at all. You know, it's like there's a bit in the book I talk about. You know, parents who take their children out of school in in term time and. The whole, oh, you know, one day doesn't matter argument, which to me is a non-argument. It's about the authority of the school. Oh, officer, I was only going five miles over there. You either, you either, there is either a law or there isn't. There's either a rule or there isn't, you know, and that way I think low standards, that's how you get these schools that are struggling. And there's still sadly too many schools that are struggling and failing.
1: And when you try to uh, assert that authority... Was the main opposition from the children or their parents?
2: I would say the parents, 100%. And of course, then that, you know, the children feed off of that, don't they? I mean, when I went to school, My parents were very respectful of uh, the school and the school and the teachers. And uh, if I was ever in trouble, which I wasn't really, uh, but if I ever was, I was in, you know, I was in double trouble. If I was ever in the slightest bit of misdemeanor, it would have been very misdemeanor and not doing homework or something. Uh, You know, I would have been in in, in absolute double trouble. And I probably that's where I got instilled in me as well. A respect for teachers, a respect for education, respect for learning that, you know, these are people to be respected. If you've got, uh, which I had many a time at the beginning, if you've got a parent standing in front of their child swearing, you know, big words, you know, the worst words, at the head, I mean, you know, that's not really helping the child to gain respect for the, 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 the school, is it? So it is, it is the parents predominantly, and then, that you know, the children see that and they watch that.
1: I had a friend who went to a Quaker school. And, and I wasn't you know I wasn't there so I don't know but I mean I got the impression that basically all the rules were decided by committees of the children and i mean, I, don't, I don't think he great I don't think he greatly enjoyed it but uh, I' I'm just wonder <laughs> I'm just wondering um you know whether you've ever seen anything like that because I mean that's obviously you know it is it is confusing as to why the respect for authority you're talking about is so um important and makes such a big difference to you know results and things like that which would apparently be you know not necessarily related so can, can you reflect to us a bit on on why this respect for authority is so important have you seen other ways of trying to do it
2: well it's interesting you say that about the the children i mean student voice is is hugely important to me it always has been when i first went into ebbsley i spent the first term every friday I'd sit in this ridiculously big office around this stupidly big table with 10 children from each year group. I did it on a rotation each week for the whole term from year seven up to year 11 at that stage. We didn't have sixth form. And all I do is ask them about school, listen to them. That's all you need to know. You don't need Ofsted, just listen to the children. Um, and so student voice is really important. They told me the teachers that were no good. They told me the teachers that were amazing. And so if it's very important to listen to students. And, I, you know, school council, student voice, it, it remains important in, 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 in any great school. And in my current school, they always want the same things. They always want to talk about toilets, which, let's face it, those are important, the quality of the toilets that you're in. And they always want to say, "Can we have mobile phones back?" And I go, "No." Next question, and then they kind of get that, and then they want to talk about other things and trips and fun things and all the rest of it. So it's not the students. I always say, if they are ever going to write a second book, which I'm not, it's going to be called. It's not about the student. It's never about the children. I mean, this is kind of the funny thing about. This makes me sad. The reason I wrote the book to retain people in teaching and encourage people into teaching, and everybody think, "Oh, you know, you know, the children, the children, the children." I said, "Like, look." I've got 31 years now scary of being in this world and what's caused me the stress and given me the wrinkles and the gray hair is the adults it's been the teachers and the parents and the local authorities and the inspectors and all it's not the kids kids are kids are kids you know and if you don't like kids you shouldn't be a teacher and it's not the children
0: this episode is brought to you by sax.com
2: at sax.com
0: it's easy to find your new vibe Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com.
1: How d- distressing was it to you? I mean, I guess you got used to it, but... You know some of the stories you recount, and you've, you've just told us you got sworn at and things. I mean, you had really awful experiences with parents being incredibly rude and unhelpful, and you know behaving in distressing ways. How difficult was it to hold the line? You know, what did you feel about it personally? It must have taken a toll.
2: It really did take a toll, Owen. And that's a really another really good question because I'm not being funny. I sometimes reread bits of the book. And you look back and you think, how on earth did we do that? I go back to how we started. I had a great team of people around me. And that's all, you know, I wasn't just this single, I wasn't standing there. (laughs) At the beginning, I was a little bit alone, but I still had good people around me. And towards, you know, as we got underway and everything, you have more and more good people who are fully aligned. Who hold the line with you? Who you you know you know you're doing it, and and ultimately it's about the children, isn't it? And then you see the results going up and the improvements in the school and blah 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 blah. And this is the this is this is the reason that you do it. Uh, but no, I'm not I'm not sort of superhuman. I mean, I don't do social media. I don't I don't read any of this. But I know if I did, I you know, I'd probably read all sorts of horrendous, horrible stuff about I me, mean, most of well <laughs> 99% of it nonsense and rubbish. But it goes back to what we we're saying about the superhead, you do need steel, you do need resilience, you do need determination and, and a real sense of moral purpose. And you need to um, ignore the noise. And that's very, very hard to do. And it did take its toll. And there was many a time when, you know, you do think, goodness, gosh, is this is this worth it? But ultimately, it really is because, as I said, I'm passionate about children and education and, and, and great
1: schools. When you went home after a day of this, I mean, a day sometimes of, you know, receiving a lot of abuse. Uh, how did you feel at the end of the day? So um, one of my very
2: wise and dear uh, colleagues that I worked with said um, very early on, he said "I think he'd always been told, you know, at the end of a really hard day, like just send three great emails to parents or to staff or to just say, just send three and just go home. And that's a really simple but really effective sort of thing to do to remind you uh, that, as I said, and I think I said it earlier, but I say it a lot, you know, the loudest voices are not always the most representative. So those parents who stood and swore at me and effed and seed and everything, they weren't the majority. They were very loud. Um, and they're the ones that caused the stress. But I as I say, every every single email and every single anecdote and every single episode in that book is true. And so as you know, if you've read the book, there are numerous lovely, kind, generous, positive emails and messages from parents and from students and from teachers that, that you that keep you buoyant. That's that's what you do. When you go home you, you try and focus on them. But I'm saying you know I'm this is sounding like a kind of a leadership lecture because many an evening I didn't think that. I just dwelt on those uh, angry, loud voices.
1: No, there were some really heartening messages, weren't there, from parents saying, thank you so much.
2: Yeah, for, and uh, I have a folder. St- I know I have it still in my current school. I, you know, I have lovely emails from parents and I, I keep, I'm sure anybody does in a leadership position, you keep a little folder of, of these lovely, not to like pat yourself on the back, but to, to make you, to reassure you that you're doing the right thing and you're going in the right direction and to motivate you.
1: I wonder whether you relate to this. I remember speaking to a teacher who had just started teaching, you know, for the first time in in sort of middle of life, and it was in a school in Oxfordshire and there were always seemed to be two or three children in the class who were highly disruptive and ruined it basically for everyone else. And it seemed terribly unfair because, you know, two children could ruin the education experience of 20 or 25 or 30. And, you know, tempting to say they should be excluded and just taken out of that situation so the others could get on with their work uh what's your take on exclusions and how you deal with those one or two who are highly disruptive and even violent you know
2: well i mean if oh that you've just you've put a lot of questions in there because violent uh, something like extreme violence or extreme abuse or something like that that is a that is a removal that's ultimately an exclusion although i do also feel you know those children need to go somewhere and that's another a whole another sort of podcast and episode, isn't it about pupil referral units and unless we just want to discard a 13 year old, which we don't but in terms of the school, however, I would say to your friends and the people that that's what we were talking about before about a good school, a great school builds a culture and a climate that doesn't allow two or three highly disrupt, you can't have that, you can't just say that as a kind of, oh well there's two or three highly, dis-. no there can't be, there can't be, look at Michaela's school which is the epitome of the school of the like the, you know the, the absolute prescriptive way of of teaching and consistency and standards and expectations and you don't, you don't have that and that's about school systems structures having that so that you've got the, the expectation, the standards, if a kid misbehaves, it's sorted, it's dealt with, that might be an immediate removal from the lesson and it might be then a, a, a a a parent do you know what I mean there's systems and structures that can be in place but what you can't have and it breaks my heart and it saddens me that you've said it again Owen that you know an ongoing situation where a teacher is going home sort of battle weary at the end of every day saying "Oh, my amazing lesson that I planned and those two little that you know sport it again and those three that's a failing school because there's no system and structure in there to deal with that. Kids are kids are kids. It's always going to be a kid who's going to try. That's that's about the systems and the culture of the school. And that's about leadership, isn't it?
1: So on uh, these more positive things, I remember speaking to a head in, in um, he's British, but he, he'd all his life been a headmaster into his 90s, if you can believe it, in uh, Pakistan. And he was loved. He was a Mr. Chips type character. He was by the parents and children. He was an adored figure. And uh, he'd worked in very remote places as well as in quite elite schools. And I asked him why he'd managed to do this so well. And he gave an interesting answer, which was, all the children I taught thought I was on their side. Do you relate to that?
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, I think it's always about explaining everything so when you're in uh the sort of tough schools i was working in when you bring in a new rule where you're enforcing something you explain it you say the reason we're doing it is this the reason we want you to wear your uniform smartly is because of this the reason that we're doing this is because we care about you I, i say this all the time to the children all the time saying the reason i'm doing this is because we care about you the reason we're doing this and Children are very smart. It goes back to what we were saying before, Owen. It's not about the the adults. The adults cause the problems in schools. It's the children are are the smart ones. They're astute. They um, and even the and you know, I don't want this to sound patronising. The, the very many children of very disadvantaged and challenged families and, and environments that I've that I've been privileged enough to work with. They they know. They get it. They they it, it's it's a it's it's a conundrum for them you know on the one hand they're thinking oh this is the teacher i think we should be doing that and on the other hand my daddy's swearing at them so you know they so i have great faith and great hope for the future because i do really believe in children and i love that your friend said that and i love that he remained ahead until he was 90 there's hope for me still to be education <laughs> minister maybe
1: well off you go from spain there, there's, there are schools waiting for you in pakistan oh. and uh, maybe, maybe you could do that they, they, they um uh, there's a very amusing uh, comment in your book, children love badges. <laughs> yeah, we all like a badge, don't we? I don't think I do, but uh, maybe. no, I don't think so. But they, but they, um, t- you, you, you found that uh, if you're trying to encourage them, there's nothing like a badge. There's nothing, you know, carrot and stick.
2: Uh, again, it, it goes back to the whole thing we're saying about you get these sort of, um titles and this nonsense about strictness and uh we got called cold its academy it was an article on us cold its academy and the thing that makes me angry about all of that is because you do all of these things you you bring in all of these uh these rules these expectations you 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 try and make all these changes and you go into to lead these schools because you care and because you care about the children, and because you care and you want to make their life chances better, and and so you know whether it's a badge or or, or, or a merit or a sticker or or, or a acknowledgement or an email home or a phone call back to. the parents to say something the kids love that it's all about them knowing and and kids do respond you know they they respond more to models and critics I know it's a I know it's a a glib and often used line but it, it it's true we all like to be told we've done something well we all like to be praised and when you're some of these really angry troubled difficult children you know you just get yourself in a little kind of maelstrom of like everything don't you but actually let's find the positive however going back to what you were saying before Some of these children need to be out of mainstream school in these specialist environments. But as I said, that's a whole different kind of conversation, because what you don't want them is going into these like casual call me Dave, like, like laid back places. They need the strictest. They need kind of boot camps. They need like, you know, they need this. They need the high standards and they need to be held tightly. But I still am a firm, uh, I'm an optimist, and I am uh, still sort of hugely positive. I um, was uh, out yesterday um, with a fantastic uh, leader in my school who'd been looking after my little dog as I was away. And we were out exchanging the dog back. And there was a group of children that, uh, because obviously we live in quite a small community, and they saw... Uh, this person, and they were like, oh, hello, and hello, and how's your Christmas, and how, you know, this is their head teacher of their school, they were absolutely, you know, this person was still a very, very special uh, individual to them, this was someone they really cared about, this was someone that they wanted to ask about, and they saw him out of school, and, you know, that was very, so I'm still uh, very positive about school and education, because I think, I do think that teachers are and 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 from the people that matter, the children are generally still respected.
1: Mixed ability sets and mixed ability schools. Uh, what do you think? And selective schools that take very bright children. What's your take on all of that?
2: Well, I mean, you've again you've put a lot of questions in. You've put a lot of things in there in, into one. I think that, uh, like in in the world, I think it's you know we're all different and all got our multiple. and and different abilities. And I think it's good that children are in schools where there's all sorts of mixed abilities. I'm very much in, uh, in favor of inclusive, comprehensive schools. However, within those schools, I think then there's definitely a place for that sort of uh, setting by ability for different subjects. So let's say a school where, you know, you might be really, really gifted at maths, which I wasn't. And then you would have in that school different ability sets for maths so that the teaching could be geared at the different uh, sort of levels of ability of understanding and unlocking maths. Or the uh, same in English. And I was very good at English and you'd have different sort of ability groups within that. And I think that's, that's great. That's a teaching strategy, and that's an organisational structure, isn't it? But in terms of having sort of schools where you know you sit an exam, and then I'm not I'm not particularly a fan of that because I just think that can lead to sort of all sorts of misconceptions about overinflated sense of self, and that a kid who's not particularly good at something feeling really like a bit of a failure. And let me, you know, I'm not an all must win prizes. Nothing could be further from me. You know, life's hard and you, we've got to kind of, you know, step up to that. But in terms of school, school should be a place of, of safety and fun and enjoyment and learning. And I think it should be mixed and mixed, uh, you know, boys and girls, mixed ability. But in the classroom, that's what a good school does. Create those different organisational structures to make sure the really bright children are stretched and challenged and get the top grades. And the children who struggle with different subjects get the ability, get the support and help that they need to make the best progress they can. And then they all play together in the playground, and they all walk to school together. I mean, I think that's perfect.
1: You're speaking from Spain. How long have you been there? Four years. And you're at a school in Spain. Is it an international school, a Spanish school?
2: Yeah, no, it's a it's an international school. It's a British International School. Um, and very much both of those things A so British school based on the UK sort of model British national curriculum all our teachers are UK trained and qualified and very experienced are an outstanding team of, of teachers um, but we're very international school we have 45 different nationalities and uh, we love that and celebrate that.
1: And how has that what, what have you what have you faced there that you haven't faced before in terms of difficulty? Uh,
2: nothing really because as I've said when i came to friends it's just the same not a word i'll say on your podcast it's the same challenge in the sunshine uh you know leading a school whether you're you know a leafy suburb or an inner city challenging or a little international school like this on on the sunny island that i'm in you know the challenges are the same because at the end of the day it's huge huge responsibility it's huge privilege you are um you you know you're 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 leading this these these children their education your your you're caring for them your your uh your you're ensuring that they fulfill their potential that they go on to uh, live their dreams that they, they 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 love school that they're happy that they're safe all of these things and the same challenges are are anywhere when you're a school leader um and the challenges that I face the most as any school leader does is teacher recruitment and just because I'm in a nice place doesn't make it any easier. In fact, it makes it harder because you have to sift out the people who just want to come and live on live, Love Island um, from the people who really care passionately about children and their life chances.
1: Yeah, I'll just mention one thing before we close because I, I teach some university students and I get classes sometimes of students from, who are really international, you know, like they're from just all over the world and i find it very difficult because i i, I never quite know what they know and yeah you know, obviously lots of different value systems lots of different ideas about the world and it's quite hard to i find it quite hard to cope with that i find it much easier if i've just got you know eleven americans or something <laughs> i do <I pretty> <laughs> know where they're coming from and i can sort of cope with that or eleven brits but uh, do you not do you find that internationalization of education which yeah you know, is happening in in some contexts that it that it's quite hard actually to 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 deal with? No,
2: of course it is. It is hard. And it goes back to what you were saying about holding the line in a kind of slightly sort of different context here, because we have our school values. And as I said, we're unashamedly in a, a British school and we have our school values of respect responsibility and compassion and integrity and excellence and we live them they're not just words on the corridor they are words on the corridor but they're not just words on the corridor and we hold on to those and yes in in some of our the nationalities of some of our families they're they're very counter to some of their um beliefs but you know that that that's like goes back to what i was saying before about when you come to our school what, what goes on outside the school that's down to you what goes on inside our school that's down to us and we live these values we develop these values we care about these values we think they're important and that's why you know a good school with with with, with good leadership and 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 caring about these things is is life changing for young people
1: can you give us uh, finally just to close to inspire everyone can you give us an example of a child who you thought was in you know in a bad situation with few prospects and yeah, that you saw develop and grow and succeed.
2: I mean, so many. I mean, not to again sounds like a politician, doesn't it? Not to answer the question. So many children that uh, you know, when, when I was in the UK, that came from families with absolutely no uh, background in in further edu- in education, let alone further education, who then go on. To apply for university, even telling you that, I'm thinking of one young man. I'm not going to tell you his name, but even telling you that gives me a shiver down my spine. Um, You know, so many. That is the joy of being a teacher. That is the privilege and wonder of working in a school because you are changing lives. You are. I mean, you remember your great teachers, Owen. Everyone does. Everyone remembers the teacher that changed their life and and the teacher that you know was a problem. And the you know, it's a powerful, powerful role and it's a really important role and in our ever-changing times i don't think that has diminished a chat gt atp whatever the initials are is not going to take away from having an inspiring role model teacher especially with disadvantaged kids who that might be the only uh, person
1: that they that does inspire them Alison colwell thank you very much for telling us about your remarkable work
2: thank you